Father, we do pray that you would take your word this morning, this holy, inerrant, infallible word, that you would make it a word to our hearts and our minds, and that your spirit would attend to it and stir within us, that we might seize upon it, that we might believe it, that we might see your beauty and your glory as it is revealed to us in the word. That as we leave here, we would know that we have met with you, the living, true God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, will you give me, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed by between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I got ice in that drink. So we've been looking at the faith of Abraham uh, over these weeks and as we've been in the summer here. And I wonder as you think about Abraham. I wonder what you think about the God in whom he has placed his faith in. When you think of God, what comes to mind? 
Theologians have often struggled to give a definition of who God is. We have used two different terms historically. The one is archetypal and the other is ectypal theology to describe God. Archetypal theology is looking at God as in, in his infiniteness. It is that knowledge of God that only God has of himself. Because God is an infinite being, and it is only God that can grasp that archetypal theology, because you and I are finite beings, so we cannot grasp the infinite. But we have what theologians would call ectypal theology. That is, that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and so what we understand of God by our finite beings that he has conveyed to us is true of God. It is right theology of God, right knowledge of God. So when we talk of God and we speak of God's attributes, or we speak of God's oneness, or we speak about God as three persons, it often feels as though our language is not sufficient to describe who God is. And yet, God has chosen to reveal himself to us by words. think, you know, when we think of how God has conveyed himself to us and what he's told us of himself by these words, which are an accurate reflection of who he is, there are different passages that come to mind, but when he does so, you and I should feel ourselves kind of perk up where he says, this is who I am. We want to listen very clearly who he says he is. And maybe no passage is greater than that when God is on the mount with Moses and he passes before Moses and as he passes before Moses he tells Moses who he is and he says this he says I'm a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty he proclaims it he declares it this is who I am and then here in our passage this morning, I think the Lord is doing the exact same thing. He's declaring it in narrative form, the exact same thing that he said to Moses when Moses was on the mount. He is now prefiguring that and picturing it before Abram here in our passage. So four quick points. As God's people, our God is to us first merciful and gracious. Second, he is abounding in steadfast love. Third, he is slow to anger, and yet he is just. And fourth, he forgives iniquity. He is forgiving. So first, he is merciful and gracious. We see that here in the text, and he demonstrates that he is a father of tender care for Abraham. You remember the context. Abraham has just come back from conquering the kings that had come to the land and conquered, and Abram comes back with all of this plunder that he has taken from these kings. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, well, you can keep this plunder. And Abram says, I will not keep this plunder. He won't be rich by the hands of a pagan king because he wants God to receive the glory. And so God, in response to this, wants to assure Abraham that he has rightfully placed his faith and his trust in God. And so he says in verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That's verse 1. You think, well, we're just going to flow along after this. But then there's this kind of abrupt halt in verse 2. 
In verse 2, Abram responds to God's promise. And it's not what you would think. Abram says in verse 2, but wait, God. You promised that you would make a great nation from me, that I would have many offspring, that I would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, and yet I still don't have an heir. I still don't have a child. He goes on in verse 8 to say something very similar about the land that God had promised to him. How am I to know that I shall possess it? He questions God. God promises to Abram and his response is to question God. Now does that rub you a little bit? The father of the faith is questioning God. And I wonder as you think about God, I wonder if you think that rubs against God. When we think of God, I would guess that most of us imagine he holds to that old adage that many of our parents used to say to us, children are to be seen but not heard. But God adheres to no such adage. He doesn't rebuke Abram for the question. He doesn't say, didn't you hear me promise? No. He shows this tender fatherly care. He takes Abram outside and he shows him the night sky and all the stars that are in the sky. And he says, look, count them if you can. That's how many descendants you have. Abram's question is a response of fatherly care. He's merciful. He's gracious. Now, we can ask God inappropriate questions, and we can speak to him in inappropriate ways, but I don't believe that's what Abram's doing here. We're told in verse 6 that Abraham, quote, believed the Lord. His question in verse 8 is clarifying. He asks, how am I to know? There's trust. He has trust. He has faith in God, but he longs for that trust to, to be strengthened in him. And faith-seeking assurance is not faithlessness. Imagine that it's Valentine's Day and a young wife gets up out of bed and she leaps out of bed and races to the kitchen table to, to see if her husband, before he left for work on this Valentine's Day, had left her any tokens of his love to her. And she gets out there and she finds that there are a dozen roses in a vase. There are her favorite chocolate truffles on the table. Then she opens up the card that he has written to her and she reads these love notes that he has penned to her. And is she wrong to have raced out to the kitchen? Was she doubting her husband's love for her that she did so? The fact that she was strengthened and reaffirmed of how much her husband loved her by reading that card, was she wrong? Sometimes that's needed. To look to God is to look rightly. It's an act of faith here by Abram. As one Old Testament scholar said, Abram complains out of his faith, not his unbelief. It takes the spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing in silence. He's wrestling. I don't have a child yet. 
I don't have the land yet. And he's looking to be reassured. But his faith and his hope hasn't been misplaced. God, in his mercy and grace, responds with fatherly tenderness. So you ask your question. You complain to God. There's that old form of prayer called lament. We do well to revive that in our day and age. It's a complaint to God. But it's a right complaint. It's a holy complaint. Now, there there are wrong complaints. There are unholy complaints. That kind of complaint where we hold up our fists to God and we say, How dare you, God? Why did you do this, God? Or why didn't you do that, God? Or you must do this, God. But that's not lament. Lament is this, it's holding out your hands and faith empty and saying, God, this is hard. This is difficult. Reassure me. My faith and my hope hasn't been misplaced. That's right. That's good. That's what Abram does here. He's looking to be reassured. Says in Romans 4 of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Paul goes on to say this he says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, Paul says, was counted to him. As righteousness. God's tender fatherly care is on display. The God merciful and gracious in response. Second, we see a God abounding in steadfast love. God abounding in steadfast love. When Abraham asked his question, I tend to believe he wasn't simply concerned with having an heir that he could give everything to. He had Eliezer of Damascus to do that if he wanted just simply an heir. I also don't think he was simply looking to, as Ian Duguid said, simply was he, he wasn't simply in love with babies in search of a cuddly Abram Jr. I don't think that's why he's asking. I think the heartache that we see here in Abram is because he wants to be reassured of the promise of God to bless all of the nations of the earth through him. In Abram's mind, he has Genesis 3.15. That same promise that was confirmed to him and became even more particular in Genesis 12 when God called Abram. That there would be a seed that would come forth from the woman. And now we know that the seed would come forth from Abram. The seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That there would be victory forevermore. And I think Abram is seeking here to be reaffirmed of that. So God reassures him of this in the most demonstrative of ways. He shows his abounding steadfast love by entering into a formal covenant with Abram. It seems like an odd scene here. It wouldn't have been an odd scene for Abraham. This was 
something that people of the ancient Near East would have often seen and understood. This is how a covenant was entered into. This is a, a type of contract, and you see that here with Abraham. He rushes off as soon as God tells him to get these animals, and he knows what to do with them. He goes off, and he gets these animals, and then he begins dividing them in two. And he separates the two pieces, one from another, and they are laid out in kind of a line. And a covenant would be entered into as the two individuals that were making this covenant with one another would then walk in between these pieces of these animals that had been divided. And by doing so, they were promising to one another that they were entering into a a contract, if you will, with one another where they were binding themselves to one another and that there was going to be blessing from this promise that they were making to one another. But if either one of them went back on the promise and violated that commitment, then they were to be divided like the animals. They were to be cut in two. And so you have a kind of oath taken in blood here. Jeremiah 34 pictures this. In Jeremiah 34, we see the nation of Israel. They're in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is being besieged by the Babylonian Empire. And as the Babylonian Empire is besieging it, the Israelites there in the city of Jerusalem enter into a covenant with one another. They realize that some of them, owning other ones of them, owning some of their brothers and sisters, Jews, as slaves, was against God's law. And they think, you know what, this probably isn't a good idea. And not only that, but they think we need all of these men on the ramparts to help during this the siege that Babylon has laid to the city. And so we're told that they separated the calves or the cows and they walked in between them. They literally cut a covenant. But then the siege is lifted, at least for a period of time. And the masters all of a sudden think, you know what, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. And so they go back and they collect those brothers and sisters, Jews, and make them slaves again. God says this to the people. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. It's an oath in blood. God enters into such a covenant with Abraham. And yet he doesn't need to. He's God. And he already made this promise to Abraham all the way back from Genesis 12. And yet here he is, and he enters into this formal covenantal arrangement with Abraham. Why? To reassure him. To encourage his faith, to strengthen his faith. He's propping it up on every side. God of steadfast love. It's absolutely astounding. Here's the sovereign, holy God of heaven and earth that enters into a covenant with a sinful, fallen man. What's steadfast love? 
and I have not even begun to comprehend the steadfast love of God. I haven't even begun to comprehend it. We will have all of eternity to try and comprehend it, and we will never make a dent in its depths. That leads to our third point. God is slow to anger. He's patient. I love that in the making or cutting of this covenant with Abraham, God lets him know that it's not all going to be rosy, that the descendants of Abraham are going to face trial, they're going to face persecution, they are going to be enslaved for 400 years, that is part of the plan. But God is trustworthy to fulfill the plan. Question comes, why though? Why not immediate? God, you've made this promise. You've established this plan. Why not just make it immediate? Is the trial and the affliction and the troubles we see a sign of God's acquiescence? Is the lack of justice present a sign of his aloofness? Is the lack of truth being embraced a sign of his absence? And the answer is no. It's a sign of his patience. Patience. And the world needs his patience. He's slow to anger. The Israelites, God says, won't come into that land for four generations. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites must first reach its full. He's giving time. Time that there might be repentance, and he's holding back the wrath of heaven behind the walls of heaven so that there's time. He's patient. Peter will pick up this idea in one of his epistles. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He lets us know so we can trust him. He lets Abram know that, look, the world isn't going to look as you think it should look. The people of God aren't going to have everything you think they should have and the timing that you think they should have it. And he tells them so that he will trust him in the midst. Jesus does the same thing. He says, look, there's going to be pestilence, and there's going to be famine, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars, and you're going to face persecution. There's going to be the cross before glory. He shows us. He doesn't hide anything from us so that we will continue to trust him. The Japanese Empire attacked Pearl Harbor Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, was ecstatic. He had been laboring for years to see Roosevelt lead America into World War II to provide an ally for England against Nazi Germany. So almost immediately, Winston Churchill got on a ship and he crossed the Atlantic to meet with Roosevelt in Washington, D.C., It was a night that after they had met, they had been discussing that night the organization that they were going to create after World War II came to a close. And they both went to their separate bedrooms. And Roosevelt all of a sudden had a kind of aha moment where he 
thought this is what the name of it should be. And so he wheeled his wheelchair down to Churchill's bedroom and the door was open and he loudly proclaimed from the hall, he said, its name, it's got to be the United Nations. Harry Hopkins, who was Roosevelt's main advisor during these years, says that Churchill appeared in the door, quote, stark naked and gleaming pink from his bath. Churchill was known and famous for taking baths and working in the bathtub. And Roosevelt, feeling a little embarrassed and having seen more of his ally than he desired to see, uh, began to inch away. And but Churchill didn't bat an eye. It didn't bother him in the least. And he said, Mr. President, you can see I have nothing to hide. And he went on with the conversation about the new name, like there was nothing wrong with the entire scene. But God is infinite. And we can't comprehend everything about him. He has nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. There will be trials before there is rest, he's telling Abraham. There will be the cross before glory. He doesn't hide it so you can trust him when things don't quite look like how they should look from our vantage point. God's plan will proceed. God's plan is proceeding. No matter how dark it looks out there, it's proceeding. Christ is coming upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels as he promised. Justice will reign as he promised. Sin will be punished as he promised. He will by no means clear the guilty. Every knee shall bow as he promised. As Spurgeon said, though we may not always see God's hand, we can trust his heart. He's simply being patient. He's slow to anger. God is merciful and gracious. Second, he is abounding in steadfast love. Third, he is slow to anger. And finally, he forgives iniquity. As I said, this event would not have been very strange to Abraham. Normal in some respects. Until it became very strange to Abraham. Because God takes him and he puts him into a deep sleep. And God being represented in that, that smoldering flame and in that torch, kind of prefiguring God leading Israel through the wilderness by the cloud and the pillar of fire and a cloud on Mount Sinai, he, he represented in these things, goes in between the two halves of the animals himself and he alone as Abraham sleeps. And that's unique. That's different. It's odd. Nowhere in all of the ancient Near Eastern literature do we ever have where a king makes a self-maledictory oath like this, calling down curses upon himself as he promises to give to his subjects. 
They don't have that anywhere. This is what God does. God is saying that he would take the punishment if this covenant is ever broken. I'll take it. Some of us tends to be more the the males among us than the females. We can quickly have a kind of bravado about us. So, you know, if someone fires a bullet, I would jump in front of my wife and kids or friend and take that bullet for them. We always see ourselves as the John Wayne or the Matt Damon or the Captain America. None of us sees ourselves as the Gomer Pyle. That's easy. About as easy when we don't know if the bullet's going to fly. God, in his eternal, infinite knowledge, his eternal, infinite knowledge knows that as he walks between these pieces of animals, that he is committing himself to the crucifixion of the very Son of God in flesh. He knows. He knew the bullet would fly. He knew the covenant would be broken. Not by him, but by us. He, he would rather be broken, and he would rather be divided, and he would rather be slaughtered than see his people receive the curse. not only promises us forgiveness, he secures it. At the very beginning of this passage, when God speaks to Abraham, he, he says to Abraham, he says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. And your reward is very great. Now Abraham is beginning to realize, and we should as well, mean that he's our shield. And it should lead us to the conclusion about that reward. Yes, that, that reward is very great. And that the greatness of that reward is this. That we receive God. That's the greatness. I receive God. I receive his forgiveness and so have his peace. And now I am one and have this God. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says as we come to the table. This is what happens when the curses of the covenant are laid upon the substitutionary sacrifices. Blood is poured out and we are delivered from the curses of the covenant. But we're not simply delivered from, we're delivered to by Christ's death. He says, this cup is the new covenant and my blood which is poured out for you. The curses of the old covenant are taken away. 
And the blessings of the new covenant are extended to you, are given to you, and they are yours. Forgiveness is yours. God is a forgiving God. Ah, this God is worthy of your trust. This God of Moses, this God of Abraham. Lord, the Lord. God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is your God, we exalt you this afternoon. God of such greatness. A God of mercy and grace. A God of steadfast love. A God of patience. A God of forgiveness. We give you praise that you are a covenant-keeping God. And we say our great reward is you. There's nothing that could surpass it. And we give you thanks. It is a delight to be your people. We pray this in the strong name of Christ.